This is a huge subject matter. I mean, when you really, there's a lot of distinctions that you have to make. And I was just talking to Rick here, and it is, I mean, it's just so many different things happening. And you have to allow the Holy Spirit to put them in order, in order for them to make sense. And um, and I think that when people come to the Word of God and they're just so, so undiscerning, they do injustice to the people that they're teaching. If you don't let Scripture say what it says and understand the distinctives between what was happening during Christ's earthly ministry and this dispensation of grace, it just causes so many problems. I've just seen it over the years, just in an anecdotal point of view. I've just seen it over the years in churches that I've been in. And I didn't understand it at the time, but now you look back at it and you can see clearly the lack of making distinctions will cause you all kinds of problems, all kinds of problems. And it's really sad in a way. So you see that this evidence of the Holy Spirit's feeling. And so they exhorted one another. They had discernment. They had joy. They spoke by the power of the Holy Spirit in order that men were not dependent upon the words of men, but on the power of God. And so uh, notice that, you know, with regard to Paul in First Corinthians chapter two and how Paul preached. He wasn't dependent upon the persuasive words of man's wisdom. I just really, as you look at it, you really come to understand that all we are are vessels and we're only going to be as good as we allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us. Right. And so a lot of people don't believe that they think it's on the person. And as long as you think it's on you, all the pressures are going to be on you, right? When you understand that the Holy Spirit is the one that's doing the work, you can actually be at ease, right? And so notice Paul, <clears throat> he, I think he had to learn this because a lot, he wasn't always of this mindset. And I think that he grew into this. And notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> What he says here, and I, brethren, in verse one, he's talking to the Corinthians and he's talking. And remember the backdrop, the Corinthians were a a city of commerce. It was a intellectual city. And so, again, I've always found it interesting. Contrast the church at Corinth to the church at Thessalonica. And you see two different mindsets. Corinth is a commerce, a city of commerce. It's a city that is an affluent city. They have a lot of uh, arts, education. And so they brought that into the church. And so they thought that they were wise through the wisdom of the age. The the Thessalonians didn't have any of that. They would come from an area where you were they were seen as barbarians. Right. And yet, what does Paul say of them? When they heard the word of God, they accepted it as it is in truth, not the word of men, but the word of God. And it's just ironic. So the Corinthians were wanting Paul to use the wisdom of the age to preach. Nothing's different. This is what's happening today. People want the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the age, preached from the pulpit. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I came not with the excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you, Save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, why does he say him crucified? Now, I think he's looking at this co-crucifixion together with Christ, that we've been raised together with Christ. We were crucified together with him. And now we've been raised together with him and we're seated at his right hand. Right. 
And so he says, I, I've just got, and so he's limiting uh, his scope to what is true and what these believers needed. And notice in verse three, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much and in much trembling. <clears throat> and my speech and my preaching, and it's interesting that he uses the word speech here because he uses the word leleo, and it's how something is said. It's the articulation of words. Now, when I first started listening to J. Vernon McGree, McGee, McGree, <laughs> McGee, I remember, I should never forget it, I was working uh, at, for UPS at the time, actually, it was early in the morning. I was on a graveyard shift and I was going to work and I turned on the radio and I was listening to this guy. And I'm thinking, who is this hick? He had such a southern accent. He was really hard to listen to. <clears throat> and that matters to a lot of people. Right. So after a while, at first I turned the radio. I didn't want to listen to him. But then I turned back and I just kept listening to him. And then it, it wasn't about how he was saying it. It was what he was saying. Right. That's the emphasis. But in a lot of instances with a lot of people, and that word laleo is how it's verbalized. A lot of people put stock in how something's verbalized more important than what is actually being said. And you have a famous preacher that we all know who gets up and says it, and he says it in a very articulate fashion, and he says nothing. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Well... (laughs) You make you make the pick. (laughs) He says, my speech and my preaching was not in the enticing words. That word enticing is the word pytho. It's the thing that you do, the persuasiveness. You try to persuade people with arguments or with certain words that you use. And this is one of the things that I've learned. I don't have to convince anybody of anything. You realize that that's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is to prepare, to allow the Holy Spirit to use me, put the word out there. And I've had many people say, I don't believe that. Okay, I'm good with it. I'm not going to sit up and try to convince you. I mean, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. And so it wasn't in the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and and of power. Why? That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in a power from God. And so if men can persuade you, who are you depending on? Who is it that you are actually depending on? And so Paul says, I rejected all of that. And I I think that the Corinthians really had a problem with him with that. Remember, over in 2 Corinthians, we haven't gotten to that yet, but we're getting there. They say his letters are weighty. And, and mighty, but in person, he's unimpressive. <laughs> well, I can understand that. And so uh, resistance to the Holy Spirit proved to be problematic for believers in the early church. And Ananias and Sapphira were put to death for lying to the Holy Spirit, right? <clears throat> now, some people would be happy that this is not happening in the dispensation of grace. <laughs> I mean, they just, they lied. Now, do you realize if this was happening today, there'd be people dropping dead all over the place, right? <laughs> Look at what they did. And we would, a lot of people would classify this as just a little white lie, right? 
Because part of what they said was true, right? Notice what happened. <clears throat> Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> and notice in uh, verse, <clears throat> we'll pick it up in verse 1. And a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the pricing his wife also being privy to it and bought a certain part and laid it at the apostles feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan so filled thy heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, we keep seeing this correlation between lying and Satan. So you see it here. You also see it in John chapter eight, that he's a, he's the father of lies. He's the author of lies. So anytime that you see lying, you know that Satan's involved in it. Right. <clears throat> and so he says, why have you, uh, Satan, so uh, filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and, uh, and, he, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Now, here's the point here. <clears throat> While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in thy own power? So they had land. They sold it. Everybody else in the church was selling land and giving it to the 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 believers that didn't have in the church, nobody told them to do it. Nobody asked them to do it. They did it. They sold the land. They wanted to get the quote unquote glory for saying that they sold it and gave money, but they kept back part of the money that they had determined was going to be given for that effort. And this is what happened. And he says, was it not in your own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied to men, but you have lied unto God. Right? And so here, um, now I don't know how many people are dying today by lying to the Holy Spirit, and I don't know how they would do this, but in this manner, early on in the dispensation of grace, not only did it happen to Ananias, but his wife did too. And really, she was just a conspirator in it. They were both said it. Did you know that this was going on? Oh, no, I know. I know. And so here she goes. She's carried out as well. And so uh, notice many of the Jews resisted the Holy Spirit's appeal to them. And you saw that back in Acts chapter 7. And um, <clears throat> a follower of the way, Ananias laid hands. Where, where am I? Do we have the same page here? Yeah. We're on 17. Uh, the Holy Spirit uh, directed the proper occasion for the renting of the veil of Christ. Uh, and so you know that uh, when uh, the, uh, the Lord said it is finished, that the veil was rented too. the Holy Spirit directed the apostles. He directed the apostles journey of uh, Paul and Barnabas. Um, the Holy Spirit aided the apostles in, the formula form, uh, in formulating the guidelines for the transition of the Gentiles into the body of Christ. Um, let's look at that there in Acts chapter 15. And we were talking about this um, with regard to the first church council. And a lot was accomplished there. And so <clears throat> notice in this first church council, the question was, um, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised? Uh, and what do you do with these Gentiles that are coming into the church? And so the question was, was answered here. Um, and notice in verse 1, And certain men which came down from the Judea taught the brethren uh, and said, Except you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and the elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. But there arose a certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here you see that this question is settled in the first church council. But it never goes away. You see it. All throughout the epistles, I don't know what it is. It's the, I think it's the fallen nature of man that makes him think that he can do what God wants him to do on his own strength. And you even see it today. People believe I can do it. And I don't think that it's a conscious thing. And maybe it might be, but it seems to be a subtle thing. That I think that I can do what God wants me to do. And I don't really need any help. I don't really need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. I don't have to live in my position. I don't have to access grace. I can do it. And, and so this is, this is what's happening here. And it's been a persistent problem from the beginning of the church. And I don't think it's going to ever stop. I think this is going to be the reason that this dispensation is going to end at failure. There are a lot of people who are teaching grace today, but it's not the grace from Scripture, right? And it's a problem. Now, notice they came to a conclusion about it. Um, Let's look over in verse 23. um, Let's pick it up in verse uh, 19. So they talked about it. uh, Paul gave some scriptures. Peter intervened. And notice they come to this conclusion, verse 19. Wherefore, my sentence is this. That we trouble them not, which be from the Gentiles that are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from the pollution of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For, for Moses from old time has in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogue and every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them, and that manner, um, the apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia. For so much we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying that you must be circumcised and to keep the law, uh, and to keep the law to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us that being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sent them, therefore, Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now, wasn't this settled? Didn't they say that the Holy Spirit corroborated this fact? That the Gentiles were not under law? And here we are today, over 2,000 years later, 
And people are still saying you're under law. It's just the craziest stuff. <laughs> you just you can't even whatever they say, you can't even make this up. <clears throat> and so the Holy Spirit authenticated that. Notice the Holy Spirit would close doors that he didn't want the apostles to go into. And so notice you see an example of that over in um, Acts chapter 16. And so we're right there. Paul and Barnabas were wanting to go into my Asia and the Holy Spirit forbade them to do it. And so um, sometimes, I mean, you, um, you, they were trying to decide, OK, which way do we go? And, the, and they were trying to go in that direction. The Holy Spirit said, not, not, you're not going that way. Notice verse 3. Uh, start with uh, verse 4. And they went through the cities and they delivered them the decrees for to keep <clears throat> that were ordained of the apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem. And so were the Holy Spirit, uh, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. And when they had gone through Phygia <clears throat> and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they were come to my Asia, they are said to go into Bithynia. But the, the Spirit suffered them not, didn't permit them to do it. And they passing by my Asia came down to Troas. So sometimes we see these forks in the road, and you can see this with the apostles here. They tried to go into a place. God didn't open the door. Right? Now, we understand that sometimes. We try to do something, God doesn't open the door. But we get our crowbar out. <laughs> this door is opening. They didn't do that here. And notice what happened. God had something else for them to do. And notice verse 9. Uh, I'll start with 8. And when they passing by Maesia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed to him, saying, come over unto Macedonia and help us out. Uh, help us. And, and after they had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel unto them. And so then they go into Macedonia. And here's an example that just because things go bad don't mean that you're not in the will of God. The time that they moved into Macedonia, things started just going crazy. And it was from their own through as they go down into Corinth. It's just trouble after trouble after trouble. And you say, oh, God, close off this door. No, that's not good. Maybe some bad things over there, but I got some other bad stuff for you. <laughs> close off this door. Now, this is the door to go through. But they, there was a lot of success that they had in those places. Going over into Philippi, they meet Lydia. And remember it said about Lydia, whose heart God opened that she might attain to the things that we spoke of. Going into Thessalonica and the, and the believers that they, they led to the Lord there. So there was success, but there was also some suffering. But God kind of just guided them down through the Holy Spirit, down the direction that he wanted them to go in. And I, you could kind of see that a little bit today with us, that just go along for the ride. Just let the Holy Spirit do it. Stop trying to direct it. But we can't do that, right? Hard, right? 
the Holy Spirit gave them a preview of the occasion as to what lay ahead. Uh, sometimes you, you see this with Paul. <clears throat> now we get to Brother Don's insistence here that Paul knew what he was doing. <laughs> I have to agree with him on that, right? Notice in Acts chapter 20. Paul was a little stubborn, and I think God used that. I think God used a lot of personality types, and I think that he says, okay, we can do it this way, but if you want to do it this way, we'll do it. <laughs> and sometimes I wonder what the alternative would have been, right? <laughs> what would have been the alternative if Paul hadn't have taken the bait? Notice here in verse 23, uh, he, he's determined he's getting to Jerusalem um, by um, Pentecost. Uh, where does he say that at? Uh, it's in verse 16 of Acts 20. I start with 15, and he says, And we sailed thence, and we came the next day over the course <clears throat> to the next day we arrived at Samos, and we arrived at Tregillium, and the next day we came to Miletus. For Paul had determined, now Paul has determined this himself. He didn't say the Holy Spirit led Paul to do this. Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia, for he hasted, if it were possible, for him to be at Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. Now, I often wonder if there's, a co- if there's not a coincidence between the fact that he has to end up sending Timothy over here to clean up this mess at Ephesus, right? Then as you see Ephesus in the book of uh, Revelation, they've left their first love. And a group that had a lot of doctrine, you see it in the book of Ephesians. They went south. Yes. You know, what's interesting, too, is that when Paul took off and went down there, it was Priscilla and Aquila that dealt with, uh, with, um, with the, uh, the guy that was out of course. Oh, uh, Apollos. Paul, yeah, yeah, right. They took him aside right. because Paul wasn't there. Right, right. So right. <laughs> right. You just don't know, I mean, what happened. Okay, so you have the consequences of Paul and we know, and I'm going to show you here, that I don't believe he was in the will of God. Well, not in his perfect will. I think God allowed him to do that. And so what you see is that God can allow you to do something. But I don't really know sometimes what would have been the alternative if I would have just stayed in God's perfect will. Would it have been more suffering or less? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But we know that the, 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 the choice that he chose, man, he, he was up against it. Notice what happens here. Acts chapter 21, and it's verse 4. And so the Holy Spirit tells Paul, clearly, don't do this. And he does it anyway. Notice in verse 3. Now, when we had discovered uh, Cyprus, we went, uh, we left it, and, we le- uh, and on the left hand, and we sailed into Syria, and we landed at Tyre. For the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding certain, uh, finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul, now notice, here's the point, through the Holy Spirit, that he should not go up to Jerusalem. And so here you have, you have just, just this note here, that the Holy Spirit tell, uses these believers to tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Now notice what Paul said. <laughs> What his response was to this. He goes on, and uh, I think it was um, later on, 
he just determined, oh, here it is in verse um, 12. Uh, let's start with verse 11. And when he was come unto us, he took, uh, well, let's go back with verse 9. You see Agabus. And the same man had four daughters and virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and he bound his own hand and feet and said, Thus said the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owns this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So now the Holy Spirit's giving them a little bit more preview of what's going to happen when he goes down this direction. And notice Paul, he waxes eloquent here and says, And when we heard these things, both we and they of that place besought him not to go to Jerusalem. So the other believers are saying, don't do it, Paul. Well, Paul says, all right, well, I'm not worried about that. Then Paul answered, what mean ye to weep and break my heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well, that's fine and dandy, but is that what God wanted? It's obviously, I don't know if he was going to die here. He could have died over here. But we know for a fact, because we have a verse that says the Holy Spirit told him not to go to Jerusalem. But I think what happened was God says, okay, you want to do it this way? We'll go your way. (laughs) And you see the results of it. Now, this is not like, um, let's make a deal. We don't know what happened behind door number one or door number two. We only know Paul took door number three, and it was trouble, 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 trouble. It's a song like that. <laughs> Every step of the way, it was trouble. And so it's really interesting when you ponder being led by the Spirit. There are times when the Holy Spirit, and we can see it even in our own lives, and we'll see it. He will try to, he will close doors and don't do that. And we understand that we're parenting. My parents would tell us, don't stop. Don't do that. And it just took a couple of times before my mother, well, I won't tell you what she did. She did. <laughs> we, we learned not to do it. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit provided overseers in the local churches for the purpose to feed the church of God. And so that's really the purpose of the pastor teacher. You see it back in Acts 20, 28. The pastor teacher, the office of pastor teacher should be, he should have an ability to teach. If he doesn't have an ability to teach, he shouldn't be a pastor. Period. It's just so clear in scripture. And so what has happened to the church is that you have a lot of people who are in the office of pastor teacher who don't have the capability of teaching. And that's not an indictment necessarily against them. There's a lot of people who are in the office. I've seen it probably have the gift of evangelism, probably have the gift of exhortation. And so the church has not made this clear. So you have a lot of people who are in the office and they are not capable of teaching. But notice here, you clearly have the responsibility to teach. That is what's killing the church today. It's killing the church today. And so um, notice he says here in <clears throat> Acts 20, where were we going, um, 28. That's what he said. So he's at Miletus, and notice he says in verse 27, For I have not shunned to declare unto you the, uh, all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to the, all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
And so you have people who have the gift of pastor teacher, but you don't have to be in the office. So you have the office is bishop, which is an overseer. And so the person that fills that office is the gift of pastor teacher. I can have the gift of pastor teacher and use it in the church, but I don't have to be in the office. In fact, in First Timothy, it says that anyone who, want, who is going to be in that office, they have to lust to be there. And I'm convinced today that if you don't have a desire to pastor, you should not be there. You will not be good at it. And so you really should lust for the office. And you have a lot of guys, and some of them even have to give the pastor teacher. They, their hearts are just not in it. They really don't, uh, don't have the concern for the people. And you, you know, Paul said over in uh, Philippians, like Timothy, he could entrust Timothy because no one was like sold as Timothy. Because all others were concerned about their own things. And that's what happens. And I just think that if that's where you're at as a pastor teacher, you're not going to be effective. And so the Holy Spirit energized the ministry of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians so that they believed. He caused them to do signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Now, I do think I want to point this out. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. And again, here's another scripture that shows you why the, the miracles were done. And so you have a lot of people today that said, I believe God can heal people and he can raise the dead and do all of this. Well, he could do anything he wants. The question is, what is he doing? Right. And during that time, again, we're told here that the reason that these miracles were done was was to validate the ones who were doing it to authenticate them. And they didn't have scripture today, which is the measurement of authentication today. Right. The accurate preaching of the word of God. They had miracles. Now notice in Acts, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, Therefore, verse 1, we ought, not to give the more, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how could, shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness with both signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Now, did we make it up? Or does it actually say that, right? That it confirmed who these people were through the miracles. Now, you know, you just don't see when Christ was at the pool of Bethsaida, there was only one person that was healed. Now, why didn't he heal everybody? If he was just coming to heal everybody, why didn't he just tell everybody, you're healed? It's just, it doesn't make sense. <clears throat> and so there was a reason why those miracles were put in place. And, uh, and it's very important to understand that. And the Holy Spirit really was behind that. Now, notice believers prayed by means of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit warned Paul specifically concerning his trip to Jerusalem, as we saw. The Holy Spirit led Peter to follow uh, Cornelius' men, as Courtney has showed you many times in, um, on Sunday. The Holy Spirit cautioned New Testament writers concerning things that would happen in the last days, that the Spirit warned that in the last days that many would depart from the faith. 
And you see it, notice in First Timothy chapter 4, if I'm not mistaken, yes. Now, I believe that what's happening here in this context, in these last days here, as using the uh, epistles to Timothy, is I think he's talking about the last days of the church. So in, in chapter 3, you can see all of these characteristics of what would happen in the last days. And people say, oh, yeah, this is a, what's happening. Well, you know, those things have always happened in the world. What's ironic is that they're happening in a church in the last days. That's the irony. Unsaved men have always lived like this. But notice in the last days of the church, verse 1 of chapter 4, now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils, speaking lies. Notice you see that correlation again with uh, lying and um, and uh, demons and Satan. Speaking lies uh, by means of hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth, just like those who eat chitlins. I can give thanks for those because I know the truth and it doesn't bother my conscience not one bit <laughs> to be able to do that. But you see there, it, that the Holy Spirit warned that this is what would be happening in the last days of the church. And so a lot of this is the legalistic constructs that are set up that you can't, you can't do this. You've got to abstain from this and all of these things of what people are telling you that you have to abstain from in order to earn righteousness before God. And they think it's righteous. And it's nothing more than um, doctrines that are inconsistent with Scripture. The Holy Spirit is performing very specific ministries in the dispensation of grace. Um, we saw that the Holy Spirit plays a pivotal role in initial salvation. Now, we've looked at this, so we won't go back to in John chapter 16, that he convicts the unsafe man of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Uh, actually, the word reprove is actually the word for convict. It means uh, to confute or refute, usually with the suggestion of putting the convicted person to shame. The Holy Spirit regenerates one who believes. Um, and so notice in um, <clears throat> Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. And so Paul writes to Titus and he gives them admonitions of the things to teach to the believers in uh, Crete. And notice he says... Uh, Verse one, but put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but to be gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish. Can we you tell someone uh, as an aside not to that you're, you're supposed to love the brethren and not the unsaved? And they say, what are you supposed to do? Hate them? Oh, come on. Come on. I mean, Really? Notice here is a good example of how you can deal with unsafe men. It says, speak evil of no man, be no brawlers, to be gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. And notice he's talking about the unsaved because of the context here. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works or out from works of righteousness, which we have done, 
but by his mercy, he saved us by the washing, and I would say the washing consisting of regeneration. And so the believer has been completely cleansed and changed because of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so the believer has a new mind, right? We can think and we can see things the way that God sees them. That's totally different from the unsaved man. For some reason, we are looking at ourselves and we think that there is no difference between these unsaved people and us. And I'm going to tell you, there's miles difference between you. Give me the the lowest or the most carnal believer. And there's a huge difference between them and an unsaved man. They may not be acting like it, (laughs) but there's a difference between them. And so the believer is regenerated. Uh, The spirit regenerates the human spirit of the one believing the facts of the gospel. He baptizes those who believe into the body of Christ. He washes the believer. He justifies the believer. He sets the believer apart. Regeneration is the birthing of men into the family of God. The fact is expressed in the usage usage of several New Testament terms. And so you have these terms for regeneration that's used in Scripture. And so you have ganao, which is the verb form. And it means a new commencement of the personal life traceable back to the creative operation of God. This new beginning of of personal life answers to the beginning of the natural life. So far as the new principle of life is engrafted in the man and he is transferred into a new sphere of life, being taken away from that which conditions of human nature to the commencement of the natural things. And this is from Freiburg, I think. But I think he's confusing a couple of things here. So you have regeneration in which you have been uh, born again. Then you have the believer has a position in Christ. And you have the fact that Christ is indwelling the believer. You have um, this word also used for regeneration is defined as the restoration of a thing into its pristine state, its renovation, or as the renewal of restoration of life after death. Freiburg in his lexicon notes that regeneration is a principle of life implanted by the spirit and imparted nature. Um, And so it's from Ganao, and it means to generate or to produce. And so you have these different uh, forms there. Tekna is a word used to emphasize one who has been regenerated. This was a result of it. And so John emphasized in his writings that these are the born ones of God, that we've been born into the family of God. When you were regenerated, you were birthed into the family of God. And so legitimately, God can look at you as a legitimate child of his. This is not like adoption. In adoption and American uh, vernacular, you are taken from somebody's family and you're put in another family. And that you're not naturally in that of that family. This is not what uh, um, um, this word techna or regeneration is emphasizing. You are actually born into the family of God. You are a legitimate child of God. You are naturally into his, uh, born into his family. And so notice in 1 John, you see that. Uh, I think it's where we want to go. I'm jumping ahead of myself, but let's look at 1 John 3. I think we'll get us there, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called. Now, the word sons is actually an unfortunate translation there. It really should be children. 
And so you have a lot of different child terms, like terms dealing with kids at various stages. This actually, this word technon, is ones who are birthed into a family. So really, we could actually translate that you are called born ones of God. It's as if you were naturally born into the family of God as if you were born into a, your natural family, as if your mother gave you birth. That's how it's seen. This is not an abnormal thing. You're not seen as someone that is in a place that they don't belong there. You are naturally born into the family of God. And the Holy Spirit makes this possible. And so notice he says, we are called the born ones of God. And this is why he says what he says. Therefore, the world knows us not. They don't really know who you are. And you go to work. And I remember when I used to go to FedEx and people look at me. I'm Kevin Jeffrey. And I could actually stood on the belt and told them, you don't really know me. <laughs> I'm sure they would have taken that in some really crazy ways. But they don't. Because I'm not out from this world. I've been born into the family of God. And that's something that's just supernatural. Um, and so it, it, the world doesn't know us because it knew him not. Beloved, we are now born ones of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when, we, when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that has his hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. And so the rapture really is a, um, a means of purification. If I'm living as if the rapture should occur at any time, I would never want to be caught doing something that I wouldn't want to be found doing when the Lord appeared. Amen right? <laughs> and so it can happen at any time. But we don't um, sometimes see it that way. No, regeneration is not man-centered. Three Greek negatives are used to emphatically dismiss the origin of regeneration from men. Notice in John 1, 13. You can't make anybody saved. You can't convince anybody to be saved. They can't convince themselves to be saved. Nobody can make them saved. Only the Holy Spirit is the one that can do the work. That takes away a lot of uh, things in Christendom. It really does. It eliminates it. Notice, here's a commentary of John in his gospel. He says, and here is a dispensational distinction here in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he, now notice the word powers, the authority to become sons of God. So before the day of Pentecost, you had all of these people that got saved under the earthly ministry of Christ. So they gained authority that in the, when Pentecost began, that they would be, have the right to become sons of God, right? And that's what he's talking about there. You don't get authority today. He was talking about during that time. Even to them that believed on his name, which were born uh, not out of blood. You have that ek preposition. And so the, the means of how they were born was not out from their lineage. It was not out from um, the will of the flesh the desirous will of the fallen nature of man, but it was uh, out from God as the source. The, the source of this new birth was out from God. And so 
You can't make yourself saved. You can't make anybody else saved. Nobody has the capacity to do that. And if we understood that, it would revolutionize evangelism in the church today. Because a lot of your evangelism in the church is the belief that somehow we can come up with a program that can cause people to want to be saved. And really, it's a colossal waste of time and of money. And so you have that. I think we can get through this page. Hey, that'll leave us with just eight pages there, Don. Regeneration has its origin of God. It came, uh, uh, it came to be out from deity. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Godhead who brings about regeneration. And you can see this in uh, John 3. Except a man be born out from water. Uh, the word water is uh, out of, of water is out from water. The reference here is not to water baptism as the baptism of regenerational proponents would like to attest. Water is reference to the one who quenches the spiritual thirst, which is the Holy Spirit. Uh, and really, you can translate that even the Holy Spirit. And so the Lord Jesus compared the Holy Spirit uh, with water during the great feast in John seven thirty nine. Um, and so the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it possible to enter into the kingdom of God. Um, and so regeneration is necessary uh, for to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's in John 3, 3, which you can see. And let's just we can go over there and end with that since we're in John. And so you see it, Nicodemus here, uh, Jesus answered in verse three and said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I'm mindful of a story that somebody wrote about Barry Sanders, and he said that he was a born again believer. And they said, well, Barry's not like the rest of these born again Christians. He's never been born again. (laughs) Something that he said, I was like, what? I mean... Uh, and the way that he said it, because he that, the way that he told him how he was saved, he didn't. He said he hadn't been born again. But here, the Holy Spirit is the one that causes this to happen. And notice in verse four, Nicodemus said unto him, "How can a man be born when he is old? He can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born?" And so Nicodemus is thinking on physical birth, and so. Here's the opportunity that if you would have been talking about regeneration of Old Testament saints, Nicodemus would have known about it. He was a teacher in Israel who should have known about this if it were possible. And so he had no idea about this kind of thing that the Lord said was going to happen in the kingdom of God, that you must be born again. He had no clue about this. And so he's thinking he's talking about physical birth. And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born out of water and even the spirit, he is not able. That cannot, he doesn't have an ability. You don't have the power. No one can spiritually regenerate another man. You can't do it. The person can't do it. Only the Holy Spirit can do it. And I don't care how many little twists that we come up with, and you got all these tracks that have all these little sweet little things that they do. They give people money. They have different entertainment venues and all of this. None of that is going to save anyone. Only the Holy Spirit 
when the gospel is accurately given, has the ability to regenerate someone. And the church doesn't believe that today. The church really doesn't believe that today. They believe that by their own techniques and skills, and you have this thing with apologetics by debating people into an argument and backing them into a corner, they'll capitulate and they'll be saved. And none of that works. 